I came into the Chaplain Corps late in my Army career. I'd been in the Army active duty or reserve about, oh, 13 years or so before I became a chaplain. So when I did, and I went to school to learn how to chaplain, they didn't put me in the basic course, they put me in the advanced chaplain course. So I was there with folks that had been in the chaplaincy for seven to 10 years. And it, it was a pretty steep learning curve for me. This was 1987, the chaplain school was not in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, as it is now. It was in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. And in our class, we had captains and majors. Our class leader was a major. One of the senior captains there was a fellow by the name of Gary. I'm not gonna give his last name, but Gary awed all of us. When he was in his dress uniform, he had medals that ran from here to there. He had patches and, and uh, uh, designators, metallic designators for skill sets all over his uniform. He was a Vietnam veteran who uh, had earned the Bronze Star in battle as an enlisted person. He was a master parachutist. We've got a little bit of an echo. Can we fix that, please? He was a master parachutist. He was what we would call a pathfinder. He had trained specially to help units then go into new areas and sort of like the CBs in the Navy. He, was, he had been a Navy SEAL as an enlisted person and he had an expert medic badge. I mean, he was covered. There was just one problem. Three years later, this person that we all admired and respected, and he was a very good chaplain. Everybody that had had him as a chaplain said so. His commanders loved his work. He was a great counselor. He empathized with people. He was very effective. But in Fort Lewis, Washington, three years later in 1990, through a process of discovery, they determined that it was all fake almost all of it that he wore on his uniform. That in fact, he had entered the chaplain corps with a bogus degree from BYU, a master's degree that he had not earned. He was court-martialed, a general court-martial, for misappropriation of property and funds and for misrepresenting himself for who he, not, he was not truly. Uh, he was fined $10,000, dismissed from service, but he was spared jail time. You know, I felt betrayed when I heard about that because I admired him, he was a friend, and he had been living a lie. You may have read last month, Sarah Jane Kavanaugh, a seven-year veteran of the Marine Corps, a sergeant who had earned the Purple Heart and a Bronze Star with a Valor device, in Iraq and Afghanistan, who had been injured by an IED and then had then contracted cancer by being exposed to the burn pits. She had gotten money from nine different veterans agencies after she left the service as a veteran and became her VFW post commander in Rhode Island until early this year it was discovered that she had defrauded everyone she had purchased her uniform and all the medals online through the internet, and she had fabricated her record, and she was sentenced after being convicted. 
of wire fraud and illegal use of military medals and identity theft. She was sentenced to six years in prison. Why do people do that sort of thing? Why do people feel like they need to validate an identity that they are not? You know, this was happening when Jesus was born. The first of the Caesars to be divinized had been elevated by the Senate about 40 years before Julius Caesar. They proclaimed him to be a god. And there were five, five of the Antonine emperors then later that were divinized by apotheosis, by proclamation by the Senate that they must then be given divine honor. Augustus was the next. And of course we know they're not gods. Why do men and women feel it necessary to fake their identity to become something they were never intended to be? You know, we're in a series where we're listening to the words of Jesus and what he tells us to be and to do. And the first of those sermons, remember, the Father said on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he said, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. Listen to him. And then Jesus tells us the reason for that is because he and the Father are one. When he speaks, the Father speaks. He does what the Father tells him to do. And the first thing then that he told people to do was to repent, as we have heard Ken pray this morning, that we should repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he turned to those that were following him and said exactly that, follow me, the command. So why should we follow this man, Jesus? Well, because he's God's son. He represented himself to be God's son, and we believe he is. He also died on the cross and was raised by the Father from the dead, and he offers eternal life. These are pretty phenomenal claims. It's imperative if we're going to follow Jesus, it is absolutely imperative that the claims he made and what it is reported that he did, that they are true that we can accept those and we can accept him for who he said he is and for what he did. You know, in John's gospel, one way to look at it is this, I think. I see three things, at least in the context of today's passage, three things going on leading up to John the 10th chapter. One was Jesus was claiming to be the divine son of God. Now, now I know that Mark's gospel in that Mark emphasizes the times when Jesus tried to keep it a secret, and there were times when he did. But there were other times when he very clearly revealed himself as the Son of God. And this is one of the themes in John's Gospel. A second thing that is going on is that he was performing miracles, good works, astounding things that revealed his glory. Revealed his glory and gave evidence that he is indeed the Son of God. That's the second thing. A third thing then, of course, that happened was because of his claim that he was the Son of God. And because of these marvelous miracles that he was performing that nobody could explain, then it generated a lot of opposition. So early opposition comes really even before we look at the Gospel of John out of Luke's Gospel and Mark's Gospel very early on. In Nazareth, after he quoted Isaiah and basically proclaimed that he had come to fulfill the messianic prophecy of Isaiah, what did they do? They then ran him out of town and they tried to throw him over a cliff. 
in Mark's gospel in Galilee, after he healed a man with a withered hand, the Pharisees then began to get together with their opponents, the Herodians, and began to plot that they might kill Jesus. So there was early opposition in Galilee. In John's gospel, we see in the fifth chapter, it's a pivotal text. He has just healed a man that has been ill who is on a pallet. He's been on a pallet for 38 years. And in that story, two key issues emerge. One is he has healed him on the Sabbath. And for that reason, they persecute him. A second issue was this. He was calling God his father. And for those who heard him calling God his father, they said that you are making yourself equal to God. And for this reason, then, they sought to kill him. Opposition, beginning now in the Gospel of John in chapter 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles. He said that God had sent him. In other words, he had come from, come from heaven, another attestation of his divinity. And they tried to seize him, but they were unsuccessful. And the Feast of Tabernacles a little bit later. He stood in the temple and all the worshipers then, as they were watching the labor being filled with water, he said, come to me if you're thirsty and drink water that I will give you that that is unending, innermost water that will satisfy you permanently. And this caused people to be divided about him. Some believed, but then others wanted to seize him and oppose him. And it intensified the opposition of the religious leaders. In the next chapter, as we move to chapter 10 and chapter 8, on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus was confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees who tested him when they brought before him a woman who had been caught in adultery and they tried to put him on the horns of a dilemma. So you see the opposition. They're beginning to try to then corner him. And then a little bit later with the Jews, probably at the same site, they have this discussion they say, but we're children of Abraham. And he said, you're not children of Abraham. You're children of your father. You're not children of Abraham. He would have listened to me and he would have obeyed me. You're children of your father, your father, the devil, who is the father of lies. And you can imagine the opposition that that created. They then accused him of what? Of being demon possessed. So that brings us to the context for today's passage in the ninth chapter. In the ninth chapter, in the tenth chapter, in the ninth chapter, Jesus has healed a man that was born blind, and they want to know, of course, who had sinned, he or his parents, and Jesus said neither. And then after all of that process, after they, in, they do an inquisition with a man in the temple, and then later the man sees Jesus in the temple, Jesus reveals to that man that, in fact, he is the Son of Man. This all caused further division. Some said, well, he broke the Sabbath. He's a sinner. But others ask in John the ninth chapter, verse 16, there's a key question that is asked that is relevant to today's passage. It says, how then can a sinner perform such signs? If he's a sinner, how can he perform these miracles? And then we come to chapter 10 where there's further division. And in that chapter, Jesus makes three claims. First of all, he uses that, that expression, I am which reflects his deity. The I am, which is related to Jehovah in the Old Testament. I am the door and I am the good shepherd, first claim. Second claim, then he said, I've got other sheep that need to be brought into the fold. And the illusion there was that there were some maybe outside Israel that should be brought in. And then finally, he says, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power that the Father has given me to raise it up again. 
And because of these claims that he made, the, some of the leaders then further accused him of being demon-possessed. But others have a question. Could he really be a sinner like that? Or is he a prophet from God? And so the specific occasion, beginning in verse number 22, then at the Feast of Dedication, the feast that we would today call Hanukkah, in the winter before the crucifixion, the Jews, the Aramaic-speaking Jews, demanded of him, finally they said, tell us, tell us finally, are you the Christ? And Jesus did two things in that passage. He first asserted his sonship, yet once again. In verse number 25, he says, the works I do in my Father's name, you see, these testify of me. But then he went further in that, that same soliloquy, and he, he declared his divinity. He made the most definitive statement so far about who he was. He said, I and the Father are one. In other words, I am not just divine like, but I am deity. And this infuriated them. And so we stand today for the reading of God's Word for our text today. John, the 10th chapter, if you would, stand as we read the text. Beginning in verse number 31. So what did they do? The Jews picked up stones again to, to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you were gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Let's be seated. You know, in this text, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. It had happened two months earlier at the Feast of Tabernacles that we talked about in John, the seventh chapter. They picked up stones to, to, to kill him then because that was a punishment for blasphemy in Luke, the 24th chapter. Anyone who blasphemed, whether they were an alien or a resident who blasphemed the name of God, was to be put to death by stoning. And this relates to the charge, claiming to be God. You see in verse number 33, well, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the fifth chapter after the healing of the man near the Bethesda pool. They sought to kill him because he was calling God his own father, and they saw that as equivalent to making himself equal to God. In verse 32, he says, I showed you many good works from the Father. Now, most of those good works were miracles, but there were other good works that he came to perform. He also taught them the Word of God, and he fulfilled, and he taught it more fully. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he did this for three reasons. It confirmed that he was a messenger from God. These miracles did, that he was sent from God. It confirmed that he was accomplishing God the Father's will, 
And everything that he did by way of miracles benefited the people and showed them God's mercy and love. In verses 34 through 36, then, he defends his divinity. He he quotes, then, from uh, Psalm 82. He said, you know, in your law it says, I said you were God's. And if, 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 if that's the case, then, uh, why do you accuse me of blasphemy when I say that I am the Son of God? What he's saying there in the context of Psalm 82 is this. Asaph, who wrote the psalm, was actually rebuking the rulers of the day for being dishonest judges. Human rulers who were seen to be God's deputies, or if you will, in little g terms, little gods, representatives of him. And so Jesus' logic goes this way. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if you call these rulers gods, these corrupt human mortal rulers that don't know how to judge, if you call them gods, then why do you say that I'm blaspheming? If I, who was sent and sanctified by God the Father, have come in your midst from my heavenly glory, then why can you not indeed call me the Son of God? You see, the implication of what he is saying is, I'm superior to those that you call gods or God's deputies. My judgments are true, and my works, my miracles accomplish God's will. And you see, my claim to be God's son is accurate and true. There's a further implication that we can draw from this. There's going to be an even greater work that he performs later. And he's already alluded to this. You see, those, quote, gods who were their rulers were mortal, but he is immortal. He is going to be raised from the dead, and he is going to have the power of life. And he has already said this in John, the fifth chapter earlier. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these. Hmm, the resurrection. So that you will marvel... For just as a father raises the dead and gives life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. So he's already hinted at what's going to happen in the future. There's going to be a greater miracle yet to be performed. And then Jesus in verses 37 and 38 says, I'll give you proof. Not proof that you wish or think about. Not illusionary proof. Not false medals worn on the chest. Not uniforms that we purchase on the internet. I'll give you solid rock bottom truth. It's evidence. You see, if I don't do my father's works, then don't believe me. But if I do the works of my father, then my claim is true. And he concluded the claim with this. The father is in me and I in the father. So this goes back to the sermon that we dealt with the quote, believe that we are one from John 14. It goes back to his claim that he is divine and that's why we should listen to him. And in John, the 14th chapter, you will remember he said, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe the works themselves. So you see they're connected. And like Jesus' response to John, John's disciples. It sounds very much like what he said to John's disciples. When John had questions about whether he was expected one or not, what did Jesus say to John's disciples? Go tell John what you see. Go tell him what you hear. You see, the blind, they receive their sight. And the the lame, they walk. And the lepers are cleansed. And the deaf, they hear. And the dead are raised up. Three times Jesus did it. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
And then what did they try to do? Yet once again, like they did at the Feast of the Tabernacles, they tried to seize him, but he slipped away as he had done many times before. From this text, I think there are three things that we can observe that I'd like us to look at today. The first of those is, indeed, Jesus is who he claimed to be. Secondly, he proved his deity through the miracles that he performed, what he did. And finally, that we have to ask the question, what does that mean today? It means that he continues to demonstrate his deity today, and we'll talk about that in conclusion. So, Jesus is who he claimed to be. You know, Jesus throughout the Gospel of John, as I said, was revealing his divinity, that he was one with the Father, that he was sent from his heavenly glory above and poured himself out, as we know in Philippians, that he was the Son of God that is fully divine, pre-incarnate, eternal member of the Godhead. The Son then becomes incarnate and he becomes Jesus Christ. He becomes the Son of Man. And of course, prophesied by Daniel. The divine Son of Man who is fully human, but he is the Messiah sent from the Father, God, Jehovah. He is the Christ we see in, in John's Gospel, the anointed deliverer. And time and time and time again, he says, I am the I am the incarnate image of the radiant glory of God. So all of these things we find in the Gospel of John, and they unfold chapter by chapter by chapter. In the first chapter, John the Baptist witness. He says, I saw the Spirit come down and rest upon him as a dove and not leave him, and I will testify to you that he is what? The Son of God. And later then, in chapter 1, he further explains that this Son then came down from heaven and he has eternal life. In the first chapter of John, though Nathaniel, I think, does not really understand exactly what he's saying, he proclaims to Jesus after Jesus reveals that he had seen him under the fig tree before he ever actually saw him. Nathaniel then says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. In John, the second chapter at Cana, he then changed the water to wine. And it says then at the end of that story that he First, this is the first of his miracles, that he reveals his glory to his disciples and they believe. In John, the third chapter, he reveals to Nicodemus indirectly that he is the son of man who will be lifted up and those who then believe in him will be saved. And then in the fourth chapter, to the Samaritan woman, she, knows, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. And Jesus uses the first of those I am statements to her in the Gospel of John. And he says... I am he, I am the Messiah. You go then to the fifth chapter of John at the Feast of the Jews. We don't know which feast it was, but many think it was Pentecost. And he was calling God his Father, making him equal with God. And he explains what this oneness means then in the fifth chapter of John. You see, I can do nothing by myself. I do only the things that I see my Father doing. And then I don't do anything on my own, own initiative. I come to do his will. Very clearly identifying his relationship as the son of God the Father. In the sixth chapter, in Galilee now, in the gospel of John, he feeds the 5,000. I am the bread of life who has come down from heaven to give eternal life. And then Matthew, at the end of that story, proclaims, you are the Holy One of God. In the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John, at the Feast of Booths in the temple. Jesus urged people to come and to drink from him, for he is the living water. And it caused the people then to question, 
Might he be the prophet that is expected? Might he be the Christ that was promised? In the eighth chapter of John, on the Mount of Olives, when the scribes and the Pharisees bring the adulterous woman to him, he then turns to them after he writes in the sand and he sends them away because they will not cast the first stone. He then looks at them and he says, I am the light of the world. And then when the Jews come to him, probably at that same site in the 8th chapter, and they had the discussion about being children of Abraham, he then says, before Abraham was born, I am. In the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John at Siloam's Fountain in Jerusalem, he revealed to the man who had been born blind as he comes out of the temple that he was the son of man. In the 10th chapter to the Pharisees, he says, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And then after this passage that we have read today, we know it continues. Then at Bethany in the 11th chapter, he then says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. After the Lord's Supper, he tells his disciples in chapters 14, 15, and 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. In chapter 15, I am the true vine. You see, and the Father is the vine dresser. And just as he concludes that then set of sayings after the Lord's Supper in chapter 16, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I came from the Father, and I'm about to go back to the Father. All of these give attestation to the fact that he's the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Christ, the Anointed One. In his high priestly prayer that comes afterward, he says to the Father, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory that I had before the world was. And then after the resurrection in chapter 20, he appears to his disciples and gives evidence that he is the Son of God in his transformed body as the resurrected Lord. And then he gave the Holy Spirit. Nobody can forgive sin but God, and nobody can give the Holy Spirit but God. And then we are told by John that he performed many other miracles to give evidence that he was the resurrected Lord. There is no question throughout the Gospel of John that he asserted that he was the Son of God. Well, how did he prove it? He, pro he proved his deity by what he did. The good works that Jesus did go, went beyond the miracles, as we said. Also his preaching and his teaching. But they accomplished the Father's will, and they proclaimed the kingdom of God, and they, they taught and fulfilled Scripture as he discipled others. But the real evidence was in the miracles. Jesus performed many miracles, not just in the Gospel of John, but in the others. When you go back and you look at it, you know, sometimes we read these stories, and I don't think that, that it really impacts us that, that greatly. We, we read them over and over and over, and sometimes we become rather jaded. Marcos was telling the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the kids at Hubbard Heights the other day. And many of those children had never heard that Bible story. And they sat there mesmerized as they heard about the miracle of God of rescuing Daniel's three friends. Sometimes I think that we need to come back to Scripture and capture that fascination and amazement 
and shock of what Jesus was really doing. Think about it for a moment. His first miracle at Cana, six stone water jars, about 120 gallons of water. He transforms into wine before their very eyes. And it was the best wine of the feast. He revealed his glory and they believed in him. Imagine being in Capernaum when a nobleman comes up to him and asks him then to to heal his son. His son is in Capernaum. And Jesus has has returned to Cana. And it's 16 miles away. And Jesus then says he is healed. And the nobleman later finds out that he is healed. And Galilee, he exercised the man in the synagogue who had challenged him and stood up. And when he tells him to shut up, go away, he does it. And the people were amazed. And they said, who is this? What is this new teaching? Imagine as he heals various diseases and exercises demons throughout Galilee daily. They may have seemed commonplace because of the, the number, but they were not common in their power and effect. The leper that comes to him and, and, and kneels before him and begs to be healed, Jesus doesn't just command it. He reaches out and he touches a leprous man. He risked becoming unclean, but he didn't become unclean because the moment that he touched him and he told him to be clean, he was cleaned instantly. Can you imagine? And he told him, okay, don't go tell anyone. And what did he do? He turned right around and went and broadcast it to all of his friends. In Capernaum, when the paralytic was lowered and he forgave his sins and the scribes chastised him for forgiving sin. Then when he turned to the man and he said, get up take your mat and go home. And he got up and he walked out of the door. It says the people were amazed. And they said, we've never seen anything like this. The man in the synagogue on the Sabbath again with a withered hand in Capernaum. It shocked the Pharisees so much that they began to go out and plot with the Herodians how they might kill him. In Nain, with a widow of Nain, after he raised that first to the people that he, uh, persons that he resurrected, it says that fear gripped the people and they proclaimed, God, God has visited us. In Jerusalem, just after this, at the Feast of the Jews near Bethesda Pool, when he healed a man on the pallet that had been ill for 38 years on the Sabbath. In Galilee, when he calms the sea and his disciples, they just look at him and they say, who is this even the wind and the waves obey him he goes to decapolis and he cast out two thousand spirits and puts them in the swine and they rush into the sea and they're drowned and legion then who had been insane uncontrollable is kempt and well dressed and returns to his family to proclaim what god has done to him in galilee A woman who has had an issue of blood for 12 years. The bleeding has not stopped incessantly every day. She just makes her way through the crowd and she just barely touches the hem of his garment. And instantly she feels in her body that she is cured. And she is. And he tells her, woman, your faith has healed you. Jairus' daughter then when he goes to her and he says, Talitha kum. And he reaches out his hand. He says to her little girl, I say to you, get up. And she immediately gets up. They were astounded. 5,000 on the hillside. He takes five loaves and two fishes. And he feeds 5,000 men, probably others with them. And 12 baskets of leftovers 
After that, then they row across the Sea of Galilee. In the middle of the night, and the disciples look and they see him walking on the water. Eh, they were fearful. They were afraid. They thought that they saw a ghost. They get to Gennesaret. And then the people crowd the streets, and he walks down the streets, and they just want to be in, in his shadow and touch his garment. And it says that all who touched him were healed. He goes to Phoenicia, and he heals and exercises the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And he then affirms her for her faith. In the Decapolis, there is a deaf mute. He spits. He touches his tongue. He puts his finger in the man's ears and he says, Ephatha, be opened. And the man's tongue is loosed and he begins, begins to speak. Back in Galilee, he feeds 4,000 with seven loaves and they collect seven baskets of leftovers. And then to Bethsaida, a blind man in the village, he takes him outside the village and he spits on his finger, puts it on his eyes. He says, can you see anything? And he says, I see men. They look like trees walking around. And then he touches him one more time and he's totally healed. In Jerusalem, the man blind from birth, healed on the Sabbath. He spits and he makes clay and he puts it on his eyes and he says, now go wash in Siloam's fountain. And he is healed. In Galilee, he did many more miracles after that. After the transfiguration, he heals a boy that his own disciples cannot heal because of lack of faith, probably on both sides. And then he goes to the father and he says, you know, anything is possible for those who believe. And the man says, what? Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And then Jesus exercises the boy and heals him. A woman bent double for 18 years. He heals on the Sabbath in the synagogue, and the officials objected. En route then to his destiny on the cross to Jerusalem, he heals a man with dropsy. And of all places, in the home of a leading Pharisee on the Sabbath. That's kind of in your face, isn't it, folks? Between Samaria and Galilee, ten lepers then come not to him, but from afar, asked to be healed, and he heals them afar, and as they go away rejoicing, only one then thanks him, and he is the Samaritan. Leaving Jer Jericho, Bartimaeus calls out to the son of David to be healed, and everybody tells him, shut up, but he persists, and the Lord stops, and he heals not only him, but his companion friend, and Bartimaeus follows him along the way. Afterward, in the Gospel of John at Bethany, another resurrection. He raises Lazarus, not immediately after his death, but after he's been dead four days. After the triumphal entry into the temple, he heals the blind and the lame in the temple. And then when he goes back to Bethany, he comes, he's coming to Jerusalem. He curses the fig tree and overnight it withers. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And folks, we have become jaded today. If we would have seen one of those, we would have been astounded and amazed and probably fearful. The greatest of all miracles was yet to come. He died on the cross and he was raised from the dead. And he confirmed this by many more miracles that he performed before he was glorified. But he was not finished. Five weeks from today, we celebrate Pentecost and we celebrate Another great miracle where God, through His Son, poured out His Spirit and created the church. And that brings me to my last point. He is 
who he said he is. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Son of God. He demonstrated this and proved it by the great works that he performed, and they are recorded in Scripture. And he continues to demonstrate his deity today. His greatest work, he defeated sin on the cross and he overcame death through his resurrection, and he gives eternal life today. We're all sinners. Yet if we believe in him, and as Ken prayed in his prayer, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all righteousness, and only God can forgive sin. Those who then trust in him and his deity will be saved. And Jesus has explained this already. In the very chapter from which we read, he has given us a preview of this. After he said he's the good shepherd, he said, you see, there are going to be many who will not believe this. You know why? Because they're not my sheep. Why are they not my sheep? Because they refuse to follow the good shepherd and to trust in who then later becomes the resurrected Lord. But you see, there are some who choose to believe, he says, just before the passage we read. And to them, Jesus promises to give eternal life. And not just give eternal life, but to make them forever secure. Because you see, I hold those who follow me in my hand, and my Father and I are one. You see, that is the key. My Father and I are one. It's not just a metaphysical thing. It is a reality. You see, we are held by Jesus Christ if we believe in Him. And we are eternally secure because He holds us and He is in the Father. And the Father holds us as well. That is a great promise of the greatest miracle of all. So how can people today know that Jesus is who He claimed to be? That's the question. If you're watching today and you have questions and doubts, is he who he said he is? Well, there are three ways to know. Number one is in the revealed Word of God. Throughout the Gospel of John, no, from Genesis to Revelation, it is revealing that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of all humankind. Believe His Word. But if you don't believe His Word, there's something else God does. There is a still small voice that works within us, and it's not the conscience. It is the convicting power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, if that convicting word of the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, He is calling you then to go to His word and read His word and understand what He promises, who He is, and the eternal life that He offers. And yet there's another evidence. There's another evidence. Not just in His revealed Word, not just in the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, but by watching the body of Christ, watching the church. Friends, today we know this. We are going to be the bride of Christ and the church triumphant. We're moving toward that today in the church militant. We are the body of Christ. And people watch us. And when they watch us, they want us to give evidence that He is the living Lord. So the command is to us to do the works that He commands us to do, to prove that He is who He is. Keep His commandments. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself and all of the commandments that go with them. Proclaim the good news of the gospel, which we are doing today, and what you do as you go into the community. And show that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then make disciples. Fulfill the Great Commission. 
teaching and nurturing them after they've made decisions. And then we come together and we bear one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. And Jesus said, if we do this in John 14, we will do even greater works than he. One of the evidences, friends, that he is alive and well and the eternal son of God and offers eternal life is a look at the body of Christ today. You are the living witnesses that he is the living Lord. How do they know? How do they know that we're his disciples? He said, I give you a new command that you do what? As I've loved you, love one another. For you see, brothers and sisters, if we love one another, he says, the world will look at you and they will know that you are my disciples and that I am alive and well. Irrefutable proof that he is the Son of God who offers eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, is who he says he is, that he demonstrated this by mighty works and miracles, and that he continues to do so today by performing miracles that we sometimes don't see because we don't have the spiritual eyes to do so. But one of the greatest miracles that continues today is his creation of the body of Christ. And this morning, our prayer is that if there's someone who has heard this message, who is listening to it now, or may in the future, that as they're convicted by the Holy Spirit, they will go to your word. They will see the truth of his divine sonship. They will see the promise of eternal life. They will recognize that they are sinners and that they need to be redeemed and freed from sin and death. And they will turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then they will enter the body of Christ and someday eternally into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is God's pleasure with you this morning as you respond to his message? Are you part of the body of Christ? Do you give evidence of that as you go forth so that people might know that he's living Lord? Or have you not crossed that bridge yet? If not, the invitation is open for you to do so.